Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Thursday, February 20, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Mark Goldwine, the Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, or CRFB, where he guides and conducts research on a wide array of topics related to fiscal policy and the federal budget. He is frequently quoted in a number of major media outlets and works regularly with members of Congress and their staffs on budget-related issues. In 2010, Mark served as Associate Director of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, and in 2011, he was a Senior Budget Analyst on the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction. He also has conducted research for the Government Accountability Office, the World Bank, the Historian's Office at the Social Security Administration, and the Institute of Government Studies at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. In addition to his work at the committee, Mark teaches economics at the University of California, D.C., and at Johns Hopkins University, where he was the 2013 recipient of the Excellence in Teaching Award. In 2011, Mark was featured in the Forbes, quote, 30 under 30 list for law and policy. Uh, Good evening, Mark, and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's just get right down to things here. Um, I just wanted to cover probably the biggest uh, thing that everybody's talking about these days is the uh, president's fiscal 2021 budget. And uh, I'd just like to get your input on what are some of your biggest uh, significant concerns on this budget. And then we can get into other things like, you know, what's getting cut and what's getting more money. But first of all, let's start off with some of your biggest concerns. So I think it's important to first understand what the president's budget is. Um, The budget isn't legislation. uh, It's not appropriations. What it is is it's the president's plan for what he wants to do, what his ideal would be for taxes and spending over the next decade. And my biggest concern with this particular budget is the plan is really built on fantasy numbers. Um, In order to make everything add up, the plan assumes ridiculous levels of economic growth and a lot of unspecified budget savings. Isn't that somewhat typical, though, of politicians and presidents when they propose budgets, they kind of get away with some of that stuff? Or is it, uh, isn't it up to Congress to kind of cut that down to a more realistic number? How does that work? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty normal for presidents to be optimistic in their budgets. Um, but to take economic growth as an example, uh, historically, when we've looked on average, the president has estimated the president's budget has estimated the economy will grow 0.2% per year faster than say the nonpartisan congressional budget office president trump thinks the economy will grow about 1.2% faster um so you can see it's a difference in magnitude that's pretty significant between being slightly optimistic and between um sort of being out of the realm of of possibility and that's where the president is right now so is anybody in Congress saying anything about this at this point? Are they, are they just um, taking these numbers, or, or do they have to have time yet to review it and, and get back to the president? So the, the way it works is the president issues his budget as a plan. But in recent years, and when I, in recent decades, Congress doesn't take the whole budget and try to consider it. What they do is they look at the pieces and decide which pieces they might want to implement. Um, so they look at the, the proposals for how to allocate what we call the 
discretionary budget, how to allocate their appropriations between the Department of State and the Department of Labor and Homeland Security and Education. They look at some of the revenue and mandatory proposals, and then they move forward. Um, in the past, it used to be the pre- that Congress would try to consider the president's entire budget, but now that they don't, um, it's maybe less important um, from a legislating perspective whether it adds up or not. Um, and meanwhile, I think that nobody really wants to focus on the fact that it doesn't add up because um, the president's opponents in Congress would rather attack the parts that, that they think cut spending um, and they can win political points. And the people in the president's own party um, don't want to say anything bad about their president. Hmm. Well, uh, just today, Mick Mulvaney made some statements about the GOP being somewhat um, um, hypocritical about uh, being very critical about Obama's budget, but uh, they're kind of silent on President Trump's uh, proposed budget at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he said those comments meaning for them to be public, um, but it certainly is the case that when uh, President Obama was in office, um, Republicans regularly criticized him for not reducing deficit enough. Um, but since President Trump has been in office, we've actually expanded the deficit by the equivalent of over $4 trillion over a decade. Yeah. Well, it's $4 trillion so far. One of the reports I read said that it could be, uh, if he wins another term in office, it could be projected to be over $9 trillion. Is that jive with what That's how much saying? we would add. That's how much um, the debt would grow. So the $4 trillion here is spending and tax cuts on top of what was already projected. So when President Trump came into office, we already had large amounts of debt, and it, we were already projecting for it to grow. But he signed into law tax cuts and spending increases that would make that picture $4 trillion worse. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. It sure is. And just for just for scaling or, or for, um, um, uh, I guess, uh, realistic purposes or so people can relate to these numbers, uh, with about 330 million people in the U.S., uh, every trillion dollars ends up being about $3,000 for every man, woman, and child. So um, when a child gets born these days, uh, we say, welcome, welcome to life, welcome to the United States, and by the way, you owe us $63,000, so good luck. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And now we have to say, and also by the time you turn 15, the Social Security Trust Fund is going to run out of reserves. So, you know, enjoy not having your full Social Security benefits. Yeah. Um, we really are leaving a big burden for our kids, um, yeah. and nobody seems to be worried about it. Yeah, that's... Um, I guess that's um, well. People are going to start worrying about it soon. I hope. Um, it has I would happened. hope so. Yeah. So, what about infrastructure? I mean, is uh, do you see anything in this budget regarding infrastructure? Because they were talking about uh, that was one of the big uh, campaign promises from Trump was you know to work on infrastructure. Is there anything in this budget for that? There is. So the president proposes a package of roughly two hundred billion dollars of um, new incentives and direct spending for infrastructure. And then on top of that, he proposes to renew the highway bill and further increase spending on that by about $100 billion. So in total, um, there's, in theory, about $300 billion worth of additional infrastructure spending in this budget on top of what we're already projected to spend over the next 10 years. And that's maybe not as large as the trillion-dollar number we've been hearing recently, but $300 billion is actually pretty significant. Yeah. I think that... Um According to one of the studies I read, it was um, in 2017, there was like $440 billion total being spent on infrastructure. So 
what you're saying is over the next 10 years, uh, Trump is budgeting another $300 billion on top of that? Um, yeah, I believe that he's budgeting another $300 billion on top of um, on top of roughly $800 billion um, that would be, or, or $900 billion that would be projected. I think $800 billion that would be projected under current law. So we will be spending over a trillion dollars in infrastructure over the next decade. But again, most of that we were already going to be spending under current law. I see. And under current projections. Okay. So uh, how does this, uh, I'm looking at the debt and I just keep this, seeing this thing just creep up, inch up every year, it just inches up, oh, another trillion dollars here, another trillion dollars here. But how is this affecting the average household? I mean, who's going to suffer the most and who's going to benefit the most, if anybody? So if the budget is enacted, um, the beneficiaries, I think, overall um, would be um, middle to higher earners, particularly those that own their own businesses and the highest earners, because the budget extends um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that's um, scheduled to expire in 2025. And to some degree, the winners would be seniors, because the budget actually um, reduces Medicare spending in a way that would reduce premiums and, and cost-sharing. Uh, the losers from this budget relative to current law uh, would mostly be in the low-income categories because of, of reductions to food stamps, uh, Medicaid program, uh, a lot of non-defense discretionary. Um, so it's sort of a mix of winners and losers. And overall, the deficit would be somewhat lower under this budget than under current law, um, but, but not as much as is needed. Okay. So um, I'm looking at, uh, just to switch gears here a little bit, I'm looking at our, at our total national debt. I think it's uh, somewhere north of $20 trillion at this point, of which uh, some portion of it is owned by foreign nations. China, I believe, owns uh, roughly 5%, maybe slightly less than 5 a little bit over a trillion dollars from my understanding. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out how that affects us on an international scale when we have uh, China and I think followed by Japan owning between the two of them close to $2 trillion of our debt. That's right. So the debt number I like to focus on is how much debt um, does, is owned by the public. In other words, um, some of that $23 trillion, the federal government owes to itself, and I don't count that. And so that, if we exclude that, we have about $17 trillion of debt. And of that $17 trillion, the Federal Reserve holds you know, roughly three, three to four trillion. Um, and then after that, two of our largest holders at about a trillion each are China and Japan. Um, I don't think it's per se a problem that China owns our debt, but it does put us at a risk in a number of ways. First of all, um, the more debt that China owns and other um, foreigners, the more essentially of returns to the, to the U.S. economy go to those foreign countries. Um, but secondly, you know, we're in a trade war with China right now. I understand there's a ceasefire, um, but um, they are not a government that we are overall friendly with for a, for a number of reasons. And if they want to use the fact that we owe them a trillion dollars as a weapon, that is that is a tool they have at their disposal. How, does it, how would they exercise a weapon? I mean, what what uh, it's obviously <clears throat> they're not carrying any cash over there. They're, they're buying notes, I guess, some like uh, uh, treasury notes or something in China. So... Um, what can they do if they decided to launch this as a weapon? Would they just want to um, try to cash them in all at the same time or something? Right. Like so that? essentially they would try to sell them. Now, I should mention that would probably hurt China worse than it would hurt the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, if, but the Chinese government may be willing to take the hit. Um, you know, they're not as accountable to their people. So they may be willing to hurt themselves harder, shoot themselves in the foot in order to hurt us in the process. 
um, and they have a, a lot more patience than we do. But yeah, essentially what they would do is sell off the debt and um, try to kind of drive up our interest rates or undermine overall confidence in um, our solvency or our ability to pay back our lenders. Yeah. Well, you can't help thinking also this is a, a political um, tool that they can use because we, you know, but there's, is- there's issues in the South China Sea with China trying to build these artificial islands and claim more territory. Uh, I guess uh, they're trying to encroach upon shipping lanes. Uh, their treatment of the Uyghurs uh, that um, is, I, I think, our criticism uh, nationwide has been somewhat muted in that area. And I, I just can't help thinking that you know it may have something to do with them owning some of our debt. Right. Look, if if China were to try to to attack Taiwan and we came to defend. Taiwan, we have to borrow from China to to pay for the military spending to defend them. Yeah. Uh, so there, you know, there is a, and maybe there's some benefit to China and the United States being intertwined through the debt. It means that maybe we're less likely to go to war with each other because um, how our economies are intertwined. But it also makes it, it also makes our decisions more limited. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly shades our political decisions. So um, could you sort of walk us through the chronology? I know we sort of, sort of touched on it before, but the, the, the president has submitted this budget at this point, and it goes to Congress, and Congress, I guess, debates over it. And what's their deadline? What did they have to have somewhere or another uh, in the middle of them? They must uh, arrive at some sort of agreement. And when does that have to be done by? Great question. So I, I think what would be helpful is to, to tell you first how things should happen and then to tell you how they do happen. Here's, here's what's supposed to happen under the law. Um, in early February, the president submits his budget. Uh, by the springtime, um, Congress has, the budget committees, written its own budget. The House has one. The Senate has one. They make their way through committees. Their own budgets use the president's budget as inspiration. They can work off the president's budget. But remember, it's actually Congress that has the power of the purse. Mm-hmm. So the president's there to make recommendations. Congress will not actually decides. And the House is supposed to pass their own budget. The Senate is supposed to pass their own budget. Um, by mid-April, they are supposed to come to an agreement on what's called a concurrent budget resolution, a single budget that is supported by both the House and the Senate. The president, by the way, does not have to support this budget. He's no longer involved in the process. He gave his recommendations. They can reject or, um, or accept them as much as they want. And then once they have that budget in mid-April, they're supposed to go forward to start enacting the, the proposals in the budget, because the budget is just a plan. So the budget may say, we're going to spend a trillion dollars in defense this year. And then they work on an appropriations bill to spend on defense. The budget may say, we're going to enact, um, you know, $500 billion of Medicare savings. And then a finance committee will develop those Medicare savings. So what Congress is supposed to do is spend May, June, July, August, um, essentially enacting parts of the budget resolution. And by October, they have to have all the appropriations bills done so government's funded for for um, the rest of the year. And they should have a lot of these other elements done so then they can start the process all over again next February. That's what's supposed to happen. What actually happens is the president puts forward his budget. Congress ignores 65% of it, the parts that are about tax revenue and spending. Um, they do look at the president's requests on appropriations bills for defense and non-defense. Um, Congress is probably not going to pass a budget at all. Um, it sounds like the um, House is not even going to put forward a budget. I don't know about the Senate. Um, so 
Instead, they're just going to skip right to the appropriations process. Um, my guess is that won't happen. Instead, what they'll do is pass something called a continuing resolution, where they basically say, we couldn't come up with a budget. We couldn't come up with an agreement of how to spend the money. So we're going to give ourselves an extension by just spending the exact same amount as we did uh, last year. And then they'll wait until the presidential election and figure figure out what to do sometime in 2021. Mm. So the continuing resolutions just basically lock us into, um, I guess, the same spending rates. I mean, there still have to be a budget, but it's just it's locked at the same rate of the prior year then. It doesn't have to be. They could do prior year plus 1% or something like that. But typically, yes, it's just an extension at, at previous year's levels. Okay. Okay. And it's usually just a temporary extension. It's usually not for a full year. It's for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, my guess is in this case it'll go into February to give – um, you know, to give the election a chance to play out, and if there is a new president, to give that new president time to have their own plan. Sure. Yeah, all those continuing resolutions, so that's got to wreak havoc with the economy, though, because, uh, you know, if I were uh, a big company about to order a bunch of stuff, um, you know, I'd be a little bit leery about whether or not the government is going to actually come through. Let's say I was a defense budget or something, a defense uh, contractor, I'd be really leery about ordering anything until uh, all this budget stuff is squared away so that I know that I'm pretty safe in making my orders. That's right. It's not super helpful for the economy that Congress basically um, misses all of its deadline and continuously acts on temporary extensions rather than um, permanent appropriations. But this has become the norm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, economic actors deal. They are used to it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So um, it, there is this thing called discretionary spending versus entitlement. Could you, it's a little bit confusing sometimes for me to understand the differences. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what they are? And uh, let's say during a, um, during Congress going back and forth and, and uh, um, squabbling about the details of the budget, what tends to get cut and what doesn't tend to get cut? Seems like entitlements is one of those things that they don't want to touch because it's politically a, a landmine. But um, discretionary spending, I hear, then becomes a uh, an issue. Great question. So, about a third of the budget is what we call discretionary. What that basically means is that Congress has to appropriate it every year. If they don't appropriate it, the money goes away and the government shuts down. Um, most of this is what you think of probably as the core functions of government. It's the federal workforce. It's the um, EPA, it's the Department of Homeland Security, it's the Defense Department, Education, things like that. And Congress every year needs to decide how much are we going to spend in these programs and how are we going to allocate them, um, either through appropriations, through a continuing resolution, or if they don't decide, through a government shutdown. Um, now, discretionary spending each year can, could go up or could go down. Um, in the early part of the 2010s, we saw a lot of cuts in discretionary spending. Over the last uh, four years, we've seen massive increases. The discretionary budget has actually grown 21% between 2017 and 2020, um, just over that short period. So it can fluctuate a lot more. The rest of the budget is what we call mandatory. And most of the mandatory budget is um, essentially on autopilot. Congress doesn't have to evaluate it every year. Um, in many cases, they never have to evaluate it. It just continues to go. So take Social Security, for example. Um, Social Security spends as much as is necessary um, to pay the benefits that, that are scheduled. Um, if the number of beneficiaries rise, Social Security spends more. Um, Medicare is the same thing. 
food stamps, the same thing. These programs are on autopilot. Congress doesn't have to budget them. They don't have to decide each year. They just keep going until Congress affirmatively says, we want to make some adjustments. And because it requires that affirmation, adjustments to mandatory programs are much more rare than adjustments to discretionary programs. Yeah, but uh, Social Security is one of those mandatory programs, right? It's the largest. Social Security is the single largest government program, and it is a mandatory program for sure. So it, um, we hear of the Social Security system becoming insolvent uh, sometime in the next decade. And what that basically means is the reserves run out. And so um, doesn't mean that Social Security, I guess, completely gets wiped out, but it just means that they can't spend more than they're taking in, which means a big reduction in people's benefits. Did I get that correct? That's right. So Social Security is a sort of a special entitlement program because it has its own dedicated revenue source and um, the payroll tax, you know, the FICA tax, and its own trust fund. And historically, that payroll tax has been enough to pay benefits. In the 90s and early 2000s, it was actually enough to more than pay benefits. And so we built up a trust fund. But now um, we spend more in benefits than we raise in taxes. And by 2035, according to the program's trustees, uh, that trust fund will actually run out and the program will be essentially insolvent. Um, insolvent does not mean benefits go to zero, but what, what it does mean is that we won't be able to pay full benefits. We'll be able to pay about 80% of benefits, which means if we did nothing, every single person in the program, doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're 62 years old or 92 years old, everybody would get a 20% immediate benefit cut. And if you think about that, you know, 2035 seems very far off, but it's when today's 52-year-olds are reaching the normal retirement age. It's when today's youngest retirees turn 77, right? That means that people on the program today cannot be guaranteed their full benefits under current law. Mm. Wow. So it, it, the uh, so Social Security actually owns some of the uh, these Treasury notes as part of our debt. Is that correct? It owns some of that $23 trillion number that, that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But that's um, when I said that I prefer the $17 trillion number, that's because that actually removes the Social Security effect, because that is bonds that we owe ourselves. You know, it's our one part of the government, the general fund, owes another part of government, Social Security. Mm-hmm. Well, we owe that to ourselves, but um, at some point it still has to be paid, especially as Social Security starts to have to draw down some of that reserve. Yeah, and one way you could think about it is essentially as we pay that debt, what we're doing is converting that money we owe ourselves into money that we owe everybody else because we're going to have to borrow to pay for it. And at that point, it starts to matter economically. Debt matters economically when it's um, when it's owed to others, not when it's owed internally. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings me to my next question. What, um, in your opinion, what is the long game in so far as you know adding more and more to our debt? I mean, what uh, every politician, usually the presidents, they say we're going to pay it down, we're going to have zero debt, and I'm like, well, that's not something you can just force people to take money for their treasury notes. But I kind of get what they're saying is they want to make it, you know, to the point where the debt is not an issue, but. Uh, that never seems to happen. So, you know, in your opinion, what is the end game? How far is this going to go? Look, the long game is we're in big trouble. Um, it is not inherently a problem for a country to hold debt or to run deficits. Um, as long as our economy is growing faster than our debt, we could actually hold debt forever. And in many cases, especially during recessions, it may be beneficial to borrow. But historically, our debt has been about 40 or 50 percent of GDP, 40 percent of annual um, economic output. At, a, at its record for one year just after World War II, 
it peaked, the, it, it exceeded the size of the economy, and we did 106% of GDP. This was extremely temporary. It was the result of borrowing very heavily to fight the war, and then um, we very quickly got the debt back down. Today, the debt is at 80% of GDP, which is twice the historic average. Within about a decade, we'll be back to record levels. We'll be above 100% of GDP. Within three decades, we'll be above 200% of GDP. Um, and if we continue to extend various tax cuts that expire and other things, we'll be at 300% of GDP. There is no um, really historical precedent, precedent for this. Um, there's only one international example of a country that's come anywhere close to this without having really a disaster. Um, and at some point, it's just unsustainable. We know debt cannot continue to rise faster in the economy forever. Uh, the question is, how do we stop that from happening? Yeah. Well, it, it dings our credit rating, our international credit rating, right? I think it was reduced in 2011 or something. We used to have a AAA credit rating, as I recall. I'm going by my memory right now, but it got knocked yeah, down. Yeah, we, we did get a little bit of a ding in 2011, both because of our high and rising debt and also because um, we sort of played chicken with the debt limit. Um, at the moment, the credit markets are not particularly worried about the U.S. because um, interest rates are low. We are the strongest economy in the world by far, and we have a history of always making good on our money. And so for now, the credit markets aren't worried. Um, the credit rating agencies aren't worried. But that could change, and the higher debt is and the, and the more times we keep proving that we're only going to add to the debt, never reduce the debt, um, the more uncertain the economy will, will be in um, having faith in the U.S. government. Okay. Uh, it uh, certainly sounds like some big issues coming down the pike here. And I, I tuned into what you said also, when the economy is down, uh, that's that's a good time to borrow. But right now, you know, at, at least according to Wall Street, you know, and that's not necessarily a good indicator of how everybody else is doing, but uh, the economy seems to be doing pretty well at this point, and yet we're cutting taxes and still driving up the debt. That's exactly right. Look, as I mentioned before, there's nothing inherently wrong with running deficits, but historically we've run deficits either during a war or when the economy is weak. Mm -hmm. And when the economy is strong like it is today, um, we've either run surpluses or we've run very small deficits. This is really the first time in our history, except for one year in Vietnam, that we've been expanding our deficit to the same time the economy is um, growing so fast. It really is unprecedented. And um, it scares me to think if we have trillion dollar deficits with three uh, percent unemployment, what are deficits going to look like during the next recession? Yeah, yeah, that's going to put us in more trouble. So, uh, getting to the uh, center uh, or, or the uh, uh, CRFB itself, it, uh, by the way, it's the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and their website is crfb.org. And just to remind everybody, we're talking to Mr. Mark Goldwine, the uh, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the CRFB. And uh, I want to ask you one more question here as we start to wrap this up. What role does the CRFB play? Um, on your website, it talks about you know dealing with Congress and so on. Is that, uh, is that your main role? So I'd say we really do three things. Our number one job is really to educate. And so um, we produce a lot of analyses and a lot of summaries that try to explain very complicated topics or very complicated reports in simple ways folks can understand. Right? So the president puts out his budget. It's a 600-page document. We give you the two-page version and the eight-page version. And then we do some follow-up analysis on, on pieces of it. So that's our number one um, goal. And there we're focused on educating the general public, but especially 
um, the press and members of Congress as well as their staff. Uh, our number two role is as a watchdog. We are there to, to point out when politicians are behaving badly, when they're adding to the deficit, when they're trying to cheat the budget, when they're not passing a budget on time. Um, and and um, we're pretty harsh on them. Um, we're also there to analyze the campaigns. So we are estimating all the um, presidential candidates' plans. For example, we have a report we put out a, a couple months ago on the candidates' health care plans. Um, and then thirdly, we're here to actually assist in policy development. So we spend a lot, I spend a lot of time on the Hill, and so does our organization, working with members of Congress and their staff, working with the administration, working with past administrations to try to develop fiscally responsible and smart um, policy, uh, both on the tax side and the spending side of the budget. So uh, uh, one other quick question here. How is the uh, CRFB funded? Uh, so we're funded mainly by grants, but we also have some um, individual donors. And if, and if your listeners want to be one of those donors, feel free to go to crfb.org and hit the donate button. Um, uh, in the past, we've gotten some money from other sources, but um, we're, for the most part, grant-funded. Okay. And there's quite a few uh, well-known people that are working at the CRFB, is that correct? So our board is a lot of the former directors of the Congressional Budget Office, the Office of Management and Budget, uh, GAO, um, the budget committees, the former members of Congress, um, and really some of the top budget and economic experts in the in the country. Okay, well, Mark, as uh, I'd like to sort of wrap this up at this point, is there anything that you feel uh, you'd like to say uh, any more about the uh, budget or anything no, about the I economy? This is a great discussion. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, again, we've been talking with Mark Goldwine. Uh, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thank you for dropping by this evening, Mark, and um, hope we can talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody, and uh, thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.